0: Hello, I'm Evans Moraches, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. My guest on this conversation is Nora Amsalem, and we'll be talking about growing up in France and discarding the harp and taking up the voice and her journey to America and being one of the first young artists in the fabled Lindemann Artist Program at the Metropolitan Opera and the wonderful career she has had already and is still having all around the world. guest on this podcast is soprano Nora Amsalem. As we are speaking, Nora is preparing to help Cincinnati Opera inaugurate its 98th season in Cincinnati in a beautiful production of Verdi's La Traviata, in which she plays the title role, The Lost One, or The Forlorn One, Violetta Valeri. Nora, you have performed this role in many of the great opera houses of the world. How do you keep it fresh when you return to it?
1: Well, you know, it's it's a, a role that I, one of my favorite roles to sing, I must say, um, along with Manon of Massenet, because there is such a progression from the first moment she enters and the last moment she's on stage. So um, that's very exciting to, to portray on stage and to, to have that, that whole acting Colour, musical colours, so so many different ones that you can give from beginning to end instead of having a more, I wouldn't say pale, but character. Some of them are not so um, full. They don't develop. And so, exactly. Yeah. And these two are really very challenging musically and also in, in the all the acting colours you can bring to them. So it's a joy. As far as keeping them fresh, I think, you know, it's like... Uh, if you're in an arena uh, a bullfighting, you still have a bull and you still have a matador and you still have a, the the arena, but it's never the same show. So I think it's it's always not that I like bullfighting because I really don't, but it's just an analogy. <laughs> <laughs> but um it's it depends really on the Um, connection you create with your fellow singers I think that's very important and it brings um, the level of the performance to another step if you create some kind of a you say in French, um, relationship. So if you, you work together and you get along, rather than just meeting somebody and saying, oh, hi, before the show, which sometimes happens. And sometimes with those also, you can create something clicks and you can create something very exciting because you actually, in those moments, you have to live in the moment because you have so little rehearsal or none at all. Sometimes you just step in and you really have to react to whatever the other person is giving you and you have to live in the moment and that makes it some sometimes very exciting.
0: In the various productions you have done of this opera, have you received advice from one particular director or another that has been something that you always take with you thinking that whenever I perform this role, I really want to remember this particular time we did it because I learned something that I carry with me, either positive or negative. Like, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that
1: happens too.
0: <laughs> I'm never going to allow myself to be put in a trash bag.
1: <laughs> exactly. Because you were in a production that oh, has yes. you in a trash bag. Yes, yes. It was hard to breathe and not agreeable at all. <laughs> but... Um, Yes, I think in each production one does. We have um, each director has a different view, and it's actually a wonderful thing to have all these different take on the libretto, on the story, on the época, on the, the way you you can walk, or just just it's very uh, simple things like that, you know, and and you take a little bit of everything and you go, oh, that's interesting. Oh, I really like that subtext. And... Even now with Linda, you know, there are a couple of moments that she wants me to interpret a certain way that I've never uh, come across before and that I find very interesting. And it's always so enriching to have different inputs in a character that you have formed over time. And it's it's very enriching and very exciting. And there's also other moments when you you, you kind of go, um, no, but in in a way... It when you work with, with really modern productions that sometimes don't have a direct relation with the text or or goes completely off book. Um, it it's you you are on stage and you have to make it work because you're up there, you know you're the person that up there and even if it's a totally crazy idea, and I've done a few of those productions too, uh, or you go completely for it completely and you find a way to make it work, to give it subtext, then you say, OK, maybe I'll try it this way and go completely with it because I find and that somehow works. You can pull that off because if you, you do it just because the stage director wants you to do it and it's crazy and you don't agree with it and you kind of, you know, half do it, somehow it never it never works that way.
0: And it reads to the audience that you're not committed in some subtle, unspoken way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Are you particularly fond of this character in part because, like you, she was French and she really existed at one point? Yes, yes. Uh,
1: yes, of course. Um,
0: I'm sure you have read at least uh, a, a précis of the original yeah. novella and of Dumas Fils and so mm. on and so Absolutely. forth. What about... Her, the original Violetta, who was Marie Plessis. Uh,
1: Marie think, right? Plessis, yeah. yeah.
0: What about Her fascinates you?
1: Well, you know, she she comes from nothing. She pulls out of, of she becomes in a, hard to say, she graduates, so to speak, and, and becomes one of the highest courtesan in Paris in such a short amount of time. She learns how to read. She learns uh, how to be educated, how to walk, how to eat, all those things that you need to know for to belong in a certain um, type uh, of society. And she, she becomes the courtisane in Paris that people want to be with, want to invite to their salon in such a short amount of time. And that says a lot, I think, about someone that she's capable to grow so fast and to bring herself up to that challenge.
0: As a kid growing up in France, did you see Traviata before you ever sang it?
1: No, I did not.
0: Interesting. Do you remember a couple of your very first opera-going experiences?
1: Yes. Um, I went, I think, to the Met because I, I uh, from university in, in. well, no, that's not true. The first, I think, opera I, I saw on video, maybe, mm-hmm. was um, the Carmen with uh, Placido Domingo and Julia Minganis Johnson. Which because, was a film an actual yes, because studio film we did the soundtrack for it i was in a children's chorus and we did the soundtrack for that oh my god so that's i that's your saw, first recording credit that's yeah child exactly. soprano yes <laughs> <laughs> in the maitrise de radio france so i think that that was the first my first opera experience
0: what was your path coming to new york and joining the fabled lindemann young artist program
1: um I I think as a child I I was um singing a lot or just mm, moaning you know and 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 so my parents wanted me to go to a Parisian school because we lived outside Paris and the only way for me to go to a Parisian school because when you when you live in a quarter you have to go to that quarter school so since we were out of paris i'd have to go to the school that's out there and in my that parents yeah. did not want that and since um i played harp since i'm 5 years old i was a harpist for 10 years 11 years um and uh, I was singing all the time, so they thought, "Oh, maybe they heard an announcement on the radio, saying that they were auditioning for this special school that's in the near the Champs Élysées, Rue uh, Right, not bad, <laughs> Franklin Roosevelt." <laughs> and it the was shopping this, was fantastic. At exactly, lunchtime, right? yes. <laughs> 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 right, all the nice stores there. And um, I auditioned to the, go into this school, which was a, a school where in the morning you would do your academics, and in the afternoon you would have um, music training, a vocal technique, so to speak, and a choral. It was a choir, and this choir was a professional children's choir. And uh, we would uh, do a lot of concerts, like Parsifal, the, the course. We did that with Jesse Norman in Sal Playel. Uh, we did the soundtrack for that Carmen. We did the soundtrack for the uh, Bohème um, with Carreras and um,
0: Ricciarelli. No, no, no. no uh, Barbara Hendricks. Barbara Hendricks, that's right. Sorry.
1: And uh, so we, we would do concerts all the time. And besides that, I would go to the conservatoire for my harp and to get all the you know uh, music history, theory, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, on top of all that. So I had a very busy schedule, and I didn't have a lot of playtime in my childhood. I worked pretty hard, actually. Because then I'd have to go home sometimes at 10 p.m., do my homework, and get up at 6.30 to take the train to go to to school. So that was pretty intense.
0: So you continue to live in the suburbs with your parents and community in to go to this special school. Yes, yes. We have something similar here in Cincinnati, the School for Creative and Performing Arts. Mm -hmm. It's the only kindergarten through graduation of high school school of its kind in the nation where you have this combination of the smallest kids— to young adults yeah. and all of them learning theater and opera and yeah, symphonic music and piano, and you have
1: and a wonderful conservatory here. Yes, no, we also, do it, yeah. for sure.
0: Mm. So you're you're singing in a children's chorus in Paris, right? Uh, obviously, s- sooner or later you become a young adult, um, and you. When does the when is the switch flipped between the pedals of the harp and the <laughs> and the <laughs> well, vocal cords?
1: Let me say this: I played, I played. Well, I was in the, the children's choir and I had solos, and we we you know we did a lot of concert. And I continued the harp because my parents wanted me to get my harp diploma. But my love was not the harp, and I couldn't f- picture myself. Um, sitting in a room alone eight hours a day practicing and that was just not for me. <laughs> You're very social. <laughs> so I got I got my degree and I came home with my degree and I said I put it on the table. I said here I did this for you. You can sell the harp. I am never touching it again. And I never did. Wow. So and from there, um, I met actually my, my voice uh, teacher in the, that school was Michel Picmal, and he's also he has a wonderful choir right now and in in um, in France. And he um, he he was very passionate and very into music making, and he really gave me the love for making music and for uh, the very beginning. And this is very beginning. And he um, introduced me to Lorraine Nubar, who's my voice teacher still today, who I met when I was 14, wow. and uh, to Dalton Baldwin, who's my other um, mentor. A great pianist so to speak. and coach and collaborator. Artist and yeah. person and everything. So I met Lorraine Nubar and Dalton Baldwin. In Nice, because every summer they give master classes in Nice, and I had done this this little um, uh, court métrage. How do you say that? Short film, I guess, on uh, Maria Callas oh when she was a child, and I did the soundtrack for that, where I sang Casta Diva. Which with she with sang a lot of head voice.
0: Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the major Bose radio hour or something like that as a kid. Uh, right, exactly, exactly. Yeah.
1: So there was a short film made made out of that, and I did the soundtrack for that. So, of course, here I come at 14 or 15 years old to the master class of Lorraine and Dalton, and she says, Oh, what would you like to sing? And I said, Casta Diva. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so she kind of looked at me like, Oh, my God. <laughs> and I sang with, you know, a lot of head voice. And, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, and then she would she would have me stand up and sing a little Du Parc song or a big Du Parc song, actually. And she would have me sit. She said, oh, thank you very much. And she would have me sit. She wouldn't work with me. But I learned so much because for three, three summers in a row, for about three weeks, I would sit all day and listen to everybody's lesson, both in Lorraine's class and in Dalton Baldwin's class. And it was fascinating. What an
0: education that is.
1: It was just amazing. And I... I thoroughly enjoyed those years. So um, it was very enriching. And I learned a lot, not by singing a lot, but by listening and seeing how things worked. Because, of course, at that moment, your voice mutates a little bit. So you can't sing. You can't push through and sing too much. And so I did that three years in a row. And then I actually, they brought me to uh, Westminster Choir College, which uh, I got into Westminster in Princeton and I did my bachelor's of arts in 3 years. I crammed all the credits in there <laughs> and, and was able And here you
0: are, you've left France for the first time. I you've was
1: 16. 16, 17 years I old. I left I actually my parents were I have amazing parents and I thank them every day because they really permit me to do What I do today and and they take care of my son when I'm not there. They traveled with me everywhere and they let me go to university before I finished my high school degree in France. Wow. And that was a big, I think, decision for them, because if things did not work out, I didn't have a high school degree. You know, but of course I went. I got into university, which was fine. But I never actually finished my high school degree, though I got all the exams to get into to university and have a university degree. But, you know, for them to make that step was was a big decision on their part, I think, and they allowed me to do that, in part because Lorraine, knew, you know, Lorraine and Dalton were there, and were looking. Over me, and they knew I was uh, well taken care of. And in Westminster, I studied with Lindsay Christiansen, also, which well, she was a wonderful person.
0: Do you have a couple of early recollections of what I call the cultural disconnect of a European coming to live and work in the United States, live and study in the United States? Were there a couple of early things that you went, oh, I'm not in France anymore?
1: <laughs> the food, one, <laughs> one of them, the main one, I would say. <laughs>
0: University dormitory uh, food is probably not haute cuisine, right? Exactly. (laughs) I don't
1: want to eat a casserole ever again.
0: (laughs) I promise not to make you one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what what do we call those? Lost in translation. Now, there were a couple of lost in translation (laughs) moments for you, I am sure.
1: Yes, I think uh, partly because, you know, my mother is Irish, so she always spoke to me in English as a child and my father in French. So there's a few words that the British people use that the American use another word for. So I had a couple of those incidents, and people <laughs> would just look at me, what is she talking about? <laughs>
0: <laughs> We're two cultures separated by a common language. Exactly yes, right. Yes, right. So you are at Westminster Choir College mm-hmm. and, and advancing your studies as a teenager still. Where does the Met come looming into all of this?
1: Well, I did, um, during my last year at Westminster, I did a few competitions that I won, actually. So I did the Marian Anderson competition and the Nats competition and the Veronica Dunn competition and the Met competition. So you
0: went to Ireland as a half-Irishman to sing in Veronica Dunn's competition. What a magnificent homecoming for you that must have been. I know.
1: It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. And uh, then they did the MET competition, too, that I won. And from there, they took me... I was 19. Oh, my God. And um, and they took me into the Young Artist Program.
0: What was it like in those days? What was the program like? Because it was early, earlier days of this program. It yes. was not It was still relatively new. Yes, you uh, Gail
1: Robinson was the director at that time. Of blessed memory. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah.
1: And... Um, uh it was just an amazing experience.
0: Talk about yeah. the house in those days. What was it like being in the Met of uh working. Well,
1: you you, w- you would get uh, they, they would pay for your voice lessons. So I still had lessons with Lorraine Nubar and they would um give you coachings. We had coachings with Graziela Schutti with Scotto. We worked a lot with Scotto, which I still see today from time to time when the I'm in New Renata York. Scotto. Yes, yes, yeah. Renata Scotto, And uh we had all these people come giving us master classes and I enjoyed that thoroughly, but what I enjoyed the most was uh, as soon as I had free time, I would go and sit in the hall and watch the rehearsals.
0: Again, your yes, powers of observation <laughs> trained from those times in Nice to re- sit and enjoy yeah. and watch people work.
1: I really, I really enjoyed seeing the rehearsal process. Seeing, you know, like Domingo or Pavarotti rehearse and Del Monaco in the back yelling. Ah! And, you know, there's funny things that happen. And just to, to see how how that process is and then to be able to go to a performance and see it all come together. And just to see the big, big, um, you know, opera stars of that time was just such a thrill.
0: So there comes that moment finally when your foot is on that stage for the first time in what, a very small part?
1: I think my, f- my debut was uh, one of the four Cretan women in Idomeneo with Domingo and Aunt Sophie von Otter. Wow. That's so a that big was way fun. to start. Yes.
0: <laughs> what it, do you have a re- recollection still of what it was like to stand on that stage and look out of the house and see that full house and say, I'm singing at the mat? I know.
1: It's like a dream come true. It's amazing. And it's such a, a huge hall. You know, and it's it's kind of overwhelming, but so exciting at the, at the same time.
0: What do you love the most about performing, the actual event when it comes time for the curtain to go up and the lights to come on, your hair and makeup in place, your costume just so you're well rehearsed?
1: I think entering in the realm of the character you're portraying. That's what I enjoy the most. And... And through that character, um, touching the public.
0: Across footlights, across an orchestra. But one of the things that I find so compelling about your work and your voice, I remember the very first time I heard your voice in rehearsal, which is when we were doing La Boheme in Atlanta in 2007. And what has always struck me about your voice in particular is um, a beautiful sadness That is part of your tone. Mm. There is this uh, pang that goes through me when I hear your voice. It doesn't mean you can't sing with joy. That Mm. has has nothing to do with it. But there is this incredible impending sadness that is so touching in the way that you sing. It's just Mm. part of your utterance, Mm. uh, whether you're singing fast or slow or high or low or uh, loud or soft. And... um, I would imagine this is one of the things that makes audiences want to hear you because they know that uh, you come to life on stage. It's not just a performance. You are in it. And I've noticed that in these rehearsals of Traviata, that you do go into uh, into a zone almost when it's time to really do something. And Nora disappears and Violetta appears.
1: Yeah, I, I really love to, to dig in there and... and... Get, get into your, your part and mm. live the moment. I think that's, that's the most important. It's really to be in the moment, portray your character, to give yourself over to your character, mm. whatever it may be, but especially in the ones that are so complex. And you can do so much with it, you know, so many different ways. There's so many colors you can bring to traffic. you can do it this way you can put the emphasis on that word and it means something completely different or you can there's so many different colors and to really dig in it and make it new every time and find something else and 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 that's what fascinates me and which I what I really enjoy
0: We've talked about a couple of roles that you've sung a lot and enjoy singing Manon Violetta Mimi and Noem Your first appearances with us were Liu and Turandot, which is a show stealer, if ever there was one. Two arias, you kill yourself, and (laughs) nobody remembers all the hard work of the Calaf or the Turandot. Everybody walks away singing (laughs) about Liu, which is terrific. Um, But I know you have a large repertoire of roles, but are there roles now at this point in your life when you think... This is what I'd like to do next. Are there a couple of those that you've yes, got on your wish list?
1: Definitely. I think a, a really good role for me right now would be Thais. Oh, I yes. would love to sing a Thais. Yeah. Just love to. And must they love the voice, period. Yes, yes. And, yes, and, and, and particularly the soprano voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would love to sing a Suor Angelica. I think I really would like to try that too. Mm. I think thoroughly enjoyed, I've done it before, but I would love to do another Desdemona. I really it fit me like a glove and I really really thoroughly enjoyed singing that part too. And um, I've never done a Boca Negra.
0: Done Not so, not very often, unfortunately. I know, but it's I know a be- And you I have know. one of the most beautiful Verdi arias of all. In yes, in right,
1: right, right. Mm. And there's a few other things that I'd like to try that are not coming to my mind uh, mm. right now, but
0: we don't have much call these days, sadly, in this less enlightened world, for recitals. But do you enjoy giving recitals, being mm. alone on the stage with the piano?
1: Very much so. Mm-hmm. I used to give a lot of recitals. A lo- I've, I've done a lot of recitals with Dalton Baldwin. Mm-hmm. We recorded together a CD of French songs, and um, I, I really like that. It's mm-hmm. such an intimate um, setting. And uh, once again, the, 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 the text is what's important. And the colors you bring to that text are, and yet again, there's so many different ways you can do that. And just the, the finesse of, of um, doing it, you know, portraying those texts with the music is, is a wonderful feeling.
0: As you begin to learn your craft and your art, are there singers of the past? whose recordings inspired you or singers that you saw in your in your study days that mm. whose approach to their work or just the color of their voice mm. uh, stay with you and are sort of touch points for you
1: mm. yes well obviously i'm going to be boring and say callas but Not you know <laughs> i think she truly gave herself over to her roles and it wasn't about voice it was about emoting and being in your character and and giving yourself over completely and she worked very hard for that and i that's very uh, inspiring and you know of course hearing uh, pavarotti was like a, a sunshine and and also domingo who I, I had the fortune to sing with also later on um you know are wonderful experiences and there's there's a singer that I really love the the sound of, and her name is Veronica Villarroel. Somehow, something about her timbre really touched me. I don't know it's why. It's a very
0: Latin sound, for lack of a yes, better way but of it's, it's it. but it's
1: very pr- distinct. Mm-hmm. The, nobody else has that sound.
0: Ah, this is something that I've always wanted to ask you because your sound, I can. As a, as a kid growing up and, and listening to opera recordings, I became very geeky about being able to identify voices. And sadly, I think we live in an era where there are fewer and fewer people who have really distinctive timbres to their voice. Your voice I can pick out in two bars. Oh, good. <laughs> and it ha- because it has a signature. Mm, mm. What do you think goes into, uh, from your own perspective, what goes into having a signature in your voice?
1: I think you're born with it. I don't think it's something that you can create or manipulate. Mm-hmm. I think it's something that's in your genetics, in your throat, and you can't make it.
0: But you you have it. That's for, that's for, for sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. And um, in your time uh, living in New York as a, as, a, as a youngster, just getting started in your profession, do you have one or two particularly vivid memories about just living in that amazing city as basically barely out of your teens? Anything vibrant about the city that struck you at the time? Ah,
1: it, it was great. It's a big city. I'm a city girl. I'm not a country girl. <laughs> so for me, it was just fabulous. And everything's at your doorstep. it's it's really vibrant. There's so many things, you know, there's concerts, there's Broadway shows which you don't you don't have in France. And just to discover that, and that's kind of the American opera, mm-hmm. you know, in a way. And that's so specific and so wonderful to discover. And I, I love going to Broadway. I mean, I was in New York um, a few months ago. Well, no, last month. I went to see um, My Fair Lady, oh. which was wonderful. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. And every time I go to New York, I try and and see and make it to a Broadway show because I really love it.
0: I'd love to hear you sing. I could have danced all night. I know.
1: <laughs> I do it in concerts sometimes. <laughs> I have fun.
0: Speaking of concerts and performances, is there, um, what is your own personal measure at the end of the evening after the curtain has come down, taken off your makeup, gotten back into your street, low, street clothes, um, how do you measure the, the quality of your performance? Do you sit and reflect after a show and say, mm, that was pretty good and it, I think it was pretty good because of this and this and this or it was not my happiest night because this didn't go well? I mean, what are your own, what are your own measurements of how well an evening has gone?
1: When somebody after the show comes up to you and says, you made me cry.
0: Well, you'll get that four <laughs> times in the next two weeks because I'm going to cry <laughs> at every performance, I guarantee you. <laughs>
1: I think that's the most important, is to touch the public. Mm. It's whatever the, the technique and the, of course, you have to make, you know, a beautiful sound, If but it's not, for, for me anyway, it's not the most important Um, The most important element is to emote and to touch the public. Mm -hmm. If they go and that they'll remember, you know, if it's just a beautiful sound and it's perfectly sung, but there's no emotion or very little emotion, then, you know, there's a lot of people that can sing really well. There's few people that really touch you. Mm -hmm. So that's what's important for me.
0: On the day of a performance, do you have any little quirky rituals that you follow? You just keep silent, eat a steak, uh, do yoga. Or <laughs>
1: <laughs> I keep quiet as much as I can, and uh, I used to eat pasta, but since I'm on a no-carb diet, carb is the enemy. I now eat <laughs> steak and vegetables.
0: <laughs> good advice. <laughs> so, good advice. Which is fine. Uh, you know. you have your, you've got your protein. That's rec- and exactly. you have good carbs from yeah, the vegetables. Yeah. Exactly. You were talking a little bit earlier about how much you did not have much playtime as a kid. Um, how have you, as a working professional singer parent, uh, tried to, uh, as it were, not repeat the mistakes that you did in your own childhood for your son Ben? Are you have you been working hard to give him playtime and a sort of a normal growing up, even though both of his parents are singers?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I have m- made it up i I didn't want him to travel with me and to be homeschooled, so I wanted him to have friends to be in a stable environment. And to be able to come and see me or his father whenever we were away. And I think that's extremely enriching for, um, you know, a child growing up. And he went to Kazakhstan with, with Dennis and did a concert and sang in front of 5,000 people. And, you know, he he went to New York, obviously. And we, we take him in a lot of places, which is a wonderful thing when, when children are growing up. But I did not want to rob him of a normal childhood, and for him to be able to go play football, he loves to play tennis. And if you're on the road all the time, that's just not possible. So I made that choice. It's true; it's difficult on me and on him too, because we're we're apart sometimes, and it's not always easy with uh, Grandpa and Grandma. <laughs> it's not the same as with Mama, that's for sure. And um, but he he always grew up that. Way so I think he's even though it's a little difficult he's he's used to it mm-hmm. and um, he you know he has hobbies he loves to play chess he's in a chess club he's in a tennis club he has his friends and next year he's going into a, an international uh, wonderful school and I'm very proud of him because he. He got in, and um, that's just a, a great school.
0: I'm um, grateful to you for sharing that advice because I think uh, any singer who will be listening to this, who is contemplating the beginnings of their career and wanting to have a family, uh, it's a challenge. It's oh, a, yeah. It's a challenge for mm-hmm. relationships. It's a challenge to bring up kids uh, to have a normal life. Uh, my godson, who is now in his mid-20s, had a very similar good experience that you have had with your son because his parents— took him a few places when he was very small. But when he became of school age, he stayed home and, you know, and went to school and went on holidays with his family. Maybe there was, you know, his father's a conductor, so maybe in the summertime. But this this idea of creating a stable home environment for kids with professional singer parents, actor parents, dancer parents— it's the one of the hardest things to do. Absolutely. And if you're a success at it, it's as I would imagine it is as gratifying as being a good performer.
1: Of course. Yeah. Uh, you just have to have you have to be very organized, and you have to have a good support team. And I'm very fortunate that my parents were willing and happy to take care of their grandson while I was not there.
0: You have sung in nearly every corner of of the world that ha- that has opera and concerts. Are there a couple of places you haven't been yet you'd like to go and, and sing? Even just so that you can satisfy a tourist's desire to say, I've been someplace. Hawaii? <laughs> <laughs> they have a very nice opera company. I know. Operates only in the wintertime. I know. <laughs> the fees aren't great, but the weather is fine. <laughs> yes.
1: Other than that, um, let me think.
0: Have you sung in China?
1: Yes, yes. I did a a huge China tour this year, which was absolutely fascinating, which I I really enjoyed. What did
0: you find about the public there that that you...
1: You know, the opera houses are about five to seven years old. So it's a real new art form that they're opening themselves up to and it's fascinating to see the public some of them are completely novice to this art form and other ones are are like you know japanese and own all your recordings know everything about about every performance that's being ever done and it's really a, a funny mixture but they're it's a wonderful public they they're very avid of, of um, you know, learning and and wanting to be there, and uh, the the just the funny thing is at the end, you know they're very warm, and then everybody takes out their cell phone and takes pictures.
0: <laughs> Welcome to the twenty first century. I know, century. I know, it's so funny.
1: <laughs> but uh, it was a wonderful experience, and I sang Traviata and Bohem together. Wow. for two months. That's, it was a two-month tour. That's an
0: arduous that's Yeah, an arduous it, it tour. was
1: kind of challenging.
0: But that's a little bit old-fashioned in some ways. You you read about this amazing tour that Joan Sutherland took in the 60s in Australia where she brought Pavarotti along. Mm. That was one of his first important engagements is to going in this little company that was organized. And they sang nearly every night mm. for about two months. Yeah. Yeah. They just, that's... Made them strong. They're made. They are made of strong stuff. Both yeah. of them were yeah, for sure, oh, absolutely.
1: <laughs> but you know, to just to be there and and they have fabulous opera houses. Just uh, amazing. Um, Strike the, the one in Harbin won the um, architectural prize, and it looks like the Guggenheim Museum. You know, it's all these. Wow. It's just amazing. It's really amazing and and fascinating. And I think there's a lot of. It's the in a way where. Things are developing. Is There's so much going on there.
0: So one of the perks of the somewhat nomadic life of being an opera singer is that you get to see places that most of us only dream about. Yeah. And yeah, someone yeah. pays you to do it.
1: Exactly. <laughs> That's it's so, so enriching. Not so and bad. To be in all these different places, see all these different cultures, and going, oh, I don't like it here, and, or I love it here. I could live here, but not there. <laughs> well, I'll make
0: sure to send an email to my friends at the Hawaiian Opera Company to ask <laughs> you to come and sing Bohem or Traviata for them. I'm sure they would be delighted. <laughs> I love to delightful.
1: sing in Italy. That's really, I, I really thoroughly enjoying singing in Italy.
0: What is special beyond, the, I would imagine, the cliche thing is that it's where opera was born and where so much of your repertoire began, but what's, what is it about I... the Italian public you like?
1: they're very knowledgeable, mm. I think. They really, it's in their gene. You know, every kid knows the Nabucco chorus, and they all sing in the street, and they all know some opera arias. And so it's really in their cultures, very deep-rooted um, in their culture. And some the public is or very enthusiastic, but they're connoisseurs, and they know. They know when, you know, that's not right, or when you're singing... Well, which is not always the case in audiences around the world. Mm-hmm. So they're very knowledgeable. And um, I don't know, I like the Italians. <laughs> <laughs> I like the food. I, I, like I was going to say and you love the food. <laughs> yes, right. The openness, the, um, you know, you, you're in Naples and people are shouting from one window to the next. And it's a different, it's a very uh, different atmosphere. It's I an really opera
0: like. come to life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they <laughs> exactly. Li- they, That's live it. The, they live the art form. Exactly. Well, it, towards the conclusion of all of these conversations, I always ask our guests the exact same questions. So, you will forgive me if these uh, are somewhat cliché questions, but I know that uh, I've always gotten interesting answers, even if it's, I don't have a clue. (laughs) So, here we go. What did you have for breakfast today?
1: I had cheese. Ah. I have cheese for breakfast every day because I don't have carbs (laughs) right now. (laughs) So, it's cheese or yogurt, but yogurt doesn't satisfy me, so I have cheese.
0: How very French. What books or magazines are you reading these days?
1: I'm actually reading just started one because I just received it yesterday uh, that you had suggested. That's A Nervous... Splendor. Splendor. By Frederick exactly. Morton. Exactly.
0: Oh, I think you will enjoy it. It's a whirlwind ride and it's it's so, um, for our listeners, this is a book by Frederick Morton that chronicles a year in the late 19th century in Vienna. And the overarching story is the tragic love affair between one of the crown princes of the Habsburg family and the actress, Mary Vetsera, which leads to their eventual double suicide, the very famous double suicide at the Meyerling hunting lodge. But all through the book, the author is yo-yoing back and forth between the overarching love story between these two and the incredible fulcrum of creative activity that was Vienna in those years where Brahms and Bruckner and Schnitzler and Freud and everyone you can think of, Hugo Wolf, um, Klimt, everyone is creating at the same time. And as you go, as you read this book, Nora, you go almost day by day and you learn what's happening in the overall love story and how it's developing, but you're also getting vignettes of all of these other people and what was happening in their lives in those days. And it left me just eyes agog at the end, thinking, my gosh, what an amazing time to have been alive when all of this creativity was happening. And there's a sting at the end of the book. I I will not do a spoiler alert. I'm not going to say anything. (laughs) Um, Are there any television programs you like to watch?
1: Um, Not television per se, but I do watch Netflix. Mm. And, um, which
0: Netflix is your addiction? I have a couple. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> I liked Scandal, which is a political mm-hmm. thriller, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I like Suits also, very much.
0: You have a phone, like all the rest of us. Are there any of the apps on the phone that you find more useful than others, something you really use often?
1: Where have I parked my car?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I just got that. It is so, so good. So and find my iPhone. That's my exactly. other favorite one. <laughs> um do you have a, a a couple of favorite Cincinnati restaurants? I, I I know where you go for lunch nearly every day. Yes, so yes,
1: <laughs> Eagle. Oh, the which, Eagle in
0: OTR on Vine Street.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. We go there for lunch because it's really good. They have great salads.
0: <laughs> there, there are no carbs, exactly,
1: again. and uh, they're quick. They're fast. Yeah. And otherwise, there's a, a Frenchman who opened a series of restaurants. Which I there's one on near Garfield Place. Jean Robert. Jean Robert. So you've been to Jean Robert's table. I've been to Jean Robert. That I was had lunch very there today. Good. Oh.
0: It's very tasty. Yes. Um, what is, if not the very best, but an important piece of career advice that you have received that you've tried to use? Anything in particular from a teacher or from Dalton Baldwin or from a friend or a manager? Anything that comes to mind?
1: I think m- make music and emote. Just the, 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 the yeah, just to be, the, to be in the music.
0: You're a woman of today, and so I know that you have musical tastes outside of your profession. Do you have any particular musician outside of the world of arpa you really like?
1: i I enjoy jazz and I enjoy uh, Brazilian music. So Ella Fitzgerald, and I actually there's an opera singer who who is Eileen Farrell. Did you hear her jazz? She's fantastic. She used to sing at the Met. Mezzo, and then after her performance at the Met, go and sing at the jazz clubs. And she's an amazing jazz singer, too.
0: There is a a landmark recording for any of our listeners that they must have. It's called Eileen Farrell, I've Got a Right to Sing the Blues.
1: I have that. With Luther Henderson and
0: his orchestra, and it's one of the great jazz albums of all time.
1: Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed her. Oh,
0: I'm glad. I'm very (laughs) glad. How do you deal with stress?
1: Um... Well, it depends what kind of stress. If it's stress that, that there's nothing you can do about it, there's no sense worrying about it and um, worrying about things before, you know, they happen. But if it's the, the stress of a performance, which some, sometimes happens because you're sick and you have to, you know, sing a show, then, but there's nothing you can do about that either. You just give it your best shot and you go in and, you know, do and uh, you take a deep breath, <laughs> say a little prayer, <laughs> and step on stage. But um, Or I, 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 if it's everyday kind of stress, I, I like to just take care of my son and be with him. And that for sure occupies your mind and takes your mind of things. Takes your mind out
0: of yourself. Exactly. Always have something else exactly. to focus on. Yeah, That's yeah. great advice. Um, you've talked a lot about people who have been important to you, and I won't ask you to single one person out above all others. But if you could uh, share with us um, one of your mentors and why he or she has been so important to you as a, either as a person or as a professional.
1: Um, well, you know, my mentors that I, I meant are Lorraine Newbar and Dalton Baldwin. I, I know them. They made me. And they're of course, responsible for for my art, you know, how I make art today and how I sing. And um I've known them since I'm fourteen years old.
0: It's remarkable when you have a a teaching relationship that stretches back for basically as far as you can mm. remember. Mm. very and reassuring and very comforting, too. I am I'm sure. Yeah, you haven't all... bopped around from teacher to teacher. you no. No. Thus,
1: she she is an exceptional teacher, and she, in also the way that she's always curious, and she always goes to everybody's master classes to learn and to to watch and to maybe take ideas and she's very open in that way and she's always pushed me to go go take a lesson with that one go take try that one go go and she even told me, oh there's there's this good teacher that teaches in in Cincinnati Conservatory, you know, if you want you you can he's really good and and so she's always, um, pushing me to get other ideas and and to go think for that person and and she's wonderful in that way because really not many teachers are that way. She's they, generous. Yes, she's extremely a uh, wonderful generous person and she's like my second mama. So no, good
0: ideas come from the most unexpected places sometimes, mm-hmm, isn't mm-hmm. it so true?
1: And sometimes you have good good. You know, experiences and sometimes you don't. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you learn funny. not to do that again. Exactly. Just like we were talking exactly. about earlier. Exactly. I,
0: yeah, I'll take that from this production, that I won't ever do again. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I had a lesson once with um, Gena Dimitrova. And big, I big,
0: famous Bulgarian dramatic soprano. Yes, yes, yes. I
1: was singing. I did her last tour and with her at the Met. Wow. And I met in the parks, I think, with Nilo mm. Santi and I think. And I, I went and I asked, can I please have a lesson? <laughs> and she said, sure. So we met at the Met and I had this, this, this lesson. And it, it was, you know, only she can sing that way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I came out after one hour and I called Lorraine and I had no more voice
0: <laughs> <laughs> don't do that don't do that again I, That's one know, of those examples. I tried yeah. and I
1: saw what she was wanting and I was uh, like it's, I can't I with my voice cannot do that she can but I couldn't but it was well, funny
0: that brings me to my very last question for you because I know young singers listen to these conversations um, any particular piece of advice you would have for a youngster just starting out You've had such an unusual path yourself with a clear path since you were, even before you were a teenager. But what's a piece of advice you'd offer?
1: I think to take your time and not be pushed by people to do your the wrong repertoire and um, emote.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Nora, so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to CincinnatiOpera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages.